You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today, of course, is no exception. We've got a guest on here who is uh, someone we've had on before, but he's never been on before individually. Last time he came on was talking about his book, How God Became Jesus, when he edited with few others. He was on here with Charles here and Chris Tilling at the same time, so... If you uh, recognize the name, that's uh, Dr. Michael Bird here, and uh, he's here now talking about a new book he's got out called Jesus the Eternal Son. Who is he? Michael grew up in Brisbane before joining the army and serving as a paratrooper, intelligence operator, and then chaplain's assistant. It was during his time in the military that he came to faith from a non-Christian background and soon after felt a call to ministry. He graduated with a B-man from Malian College and honors and PhD from the University of Queensland. Michael taught New Testament at the Highland Theological College in Scotland before joining Brisbane School of Theology as lecturer on theology. He joined a faculty at Ridley as lecturer on theology in 2013. Michael describes himself as a biblical theologian who endeavors to bring together biblical studies and systematic theology. He believes that the purpose of a church is to gospelize, as to preach, promote, and practice the gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remembered by students for his mix of outlandish humor and intellectual rigor, he makes theology both entertaining and challenging. As an industrious researcher, Michael has written and edited over 30 books in the fields of Septuagint, Historical Jesus, Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology. His book, Evangelical Theology, is an attempt to develop a truly gospel-based theology that promotes the advance of the gospel in Christian life and thought. He is a co-editor of a New Covenant series and associate editor for Zondervan's The Story of God, Bible Commentary, and an elected member of the Studorium Novi Testamenta Societis, the International Society of New Testament Scholars. He speaks often at conferences in Australia, the UK, and UC and USA, and is currently working on New Testament introduction cooperative NT Wright. He also runs a popular blog called Evangelion. Michael is married to Naomi, and they have four children. And his teaching areas are synoptic gospels, Paul's letter, systematic theology. His research interests are gospels, Pauline theology, New Testament theology, and Christian origins. And when he is not busy with work, he enjoys running rugby league, tennis, and despising coffee. Hey, I'm not the only one. He secretly aspires to play the role of the American in the musical Chess. Uh, Dr. Bird, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast again. Yeah, hi Nick. Thank you very much for that uh, that very lengthy introduction. Now you know everything about me. And uh, I know when we're chatting in emails and such, you prefer to go by Mike. Do you prefer that for the show as well? Yep, definitely call me Mike. Okay. Now your story is a bit fascinating. I think. I mean, I gave a brief version, but how you came to be a Christian, I think, is pretty fascinating, isn't it? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know how you mean. My, I mean, there's different degrees of fascination, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My my family was uh, very uh, secular. I mean, not 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 necessarily anti-religious. It was just simply a non-entity for us for the most part. Um, and you know, I, I didn't have a lot of Christian influence. I didn't know everything about Christians. I had a very stereotypical view of what Christians were like. And yeah, as I say, growing up, uh, everything I learned about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders. Basically, <laughs> uh, that was my main window into who Christians were. Uh, and yeah, and it turns out they were a lot different to that. So yeah, I, I visited a church in my uh, when I was about nineteen, twenty. Or so, and uh, found that the people there were very different to what I uh, imagined them to be. And I, you know, heard the good news of Jesus, His death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. And I remember praying uh, to to Christ, and that the world's been a different place ever since. And I think I heard you speak on. I think it was on the Eternity Impact podcast once on how important you think doing apologetics like a podcast like this and such is am i right yeah i think it's it's a good work i mean there's uh you know, we we have the command to provide a, a reason for the hope that is within us and we need people like yourself nick and many others doing that through various forums mm-hmm. through through podcasts public speaking blogs books and just being willing to to um, explain your, your own faith wherever you are. Now, I, I would like to give a little mention here. You got mentioned that you're part of the Studiorum Novi Testamenta Societis. I'm not sure if you know this, but I just received news this past week. My father-in-law has been added to that as well. Yep, I heard, I heard the news. I wasn't at the meeting, mm-hmm. uh, but I heard the news that it's been, uh, that Mike was admitted to membership, and that's very good. It's a it's it's a relatively prestigious society. You, uh-huh. you don't join, you get elected. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's it's good. So well done to um, your father-in-law Michael for mm-hmm. um, uh, getting membership in that in that group. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we can probably expect in this interview we're going to see something that that usually shows up in your books. I didn't see it in this one, but that's the classic Australian humor, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, people receive humor in different ways. I have. Um, uh, some people will say that my books are funny, fresh, and enjoyable, mm-hmm. and others will say that they are juvenile and mundane. <laughs> um, so people have, to, you know, when you try and, you know, throw in a little bit of humor in some books, people will have different responses to it. And I, I do it differently in different books. But in, in Jesus the Eternal Son, um, I've been a little bit more austere. Uh, in how in how I've done this, so it's it's not a lot of humor. I don't think there's any humor here, to be honest. So yeah. that might disappoint some people, but please a great many others. Yeah, that that was the only thing really disappointed me because I've loved reading so many books in your past, just seeing the little bits and such. I, I understand that when you after you wrote uh, how God became Jesus, you sent Ermin a movie. I think it was Australia or Castle or some movie to show Australian humor. Yeah, I, I sent him a, a, a DVD of a famous Australian movie called The Castle, uh-huh. uh, just to help him, just to help him understand the Australian sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I know he got it. Um, I don't know whether to this day he's ever watched the movie. It's mm-hmm. a good funny. If you want to understand Australian culture, watch the movie The Castle. 
Um, you could you could probably get it, you know, order it off um, Amazon or something. It's it's a good movie to watch. Okay, I might check and see if that's on Netflix. Yeah. Now, the book is a Jesus the Eternal Son we we're talking about today, answering adoptionist Christology. So I suppose the obvious question some people could be wondering is, what is adoptionist Christology? Adoptionist Christology is the view that Jesus was not always the Son of God. He mm. became the Son of God at a particular point, and that could have been at his resurrection, at his baptism, or maybe even his birth. But the idea is that he becomes the Son at some distinctive point, mm. whereas uh, the sort of broad description of Jesus as a as a person as a divine person would would claim that he was always the son of God he was also always the eternal son mm -hmm. who became a human being in the man Jesus of Nazareth mm -hmm. but he was never adopted or exalted or he never achieved divine sonship by merit now are there any groups you can think of today that do hold to this kind of adoptionist Christology um, I don't know any particular groups uh, who would do it. I mean, it, it does have a um, certain analogies to um, Jehovah's Witness, who, I mean, they may not deny the eternal sonship, but they certainly think he has a lesser degree of divinity. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think some Unitarians, uh, I, don't know, I don't know any Unitarians, there might be uh, a few, but I think if, they tend to gravitate towards this idea of Jesus as a human being who received divine honors or something to that effect. I did have someone email me recently I've been working with who's coming out of Jehovah's Witnesses and is reading a lot of New Testament scholarship and says, hey, I'm reading this book, uh, Jesus the Eternal Son. I, I think you might have mentioned it to me. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing him this Sunday night. Oh, good. Good. That's, that's, that's very good to hear. Yeah. And, and for our interest, we, we did have to work this out in advance quite well because as I'm recording, it's Sunday night here. We're getting ready to go to bed and the Peter's household, and in the Bird household, you all are just waking up, aren't you? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's about ten past nine in the morning here, so I'm just starting the working day. Mm -hmm. Now, while there might not be many groups that hold to an adoptionist Christology, it is fairly popular in much non-Christian New Testament scholarship, isn't it? Uh, well, in, in, even in some Christian um, scholarship, mm. uh, they can hold it. The, the idea is that Christology kind of evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and then some hold forth the view that the earliest conception of Jesus was as a man who was adopted as God's son. And then, then he became pre-existent. And then they had a whole theology of incarnation. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea that it gradually evolved this way. And a, a number of scholars, I mean, some with you know, varying degrees of Christian commitment, mm -hmm. have, ex have expressed the development of Christology in mm -hmm. that way. But that's, that's a, I mean, I think there was a development. I mean, the apostles were not walking around yeah. with the Nicene Creed downloaded into their head right. or anything like that. There is, there is a diversity and there is some degree of de development as the church had to think through who Jesus is. But the idea that Christology developed from an adoptionism into something else I don't think works. And I think the standard texts lined up to prove uh, adoptionism in the early church uh, simply don't say what people think they say. I think, I think there's a different story to be told. Yeah, I think Richard Bauckham, who wrote the foreword to this book, has uh, said 
the I, I don't remember the order, but he said, Evil says the earliest Christology is the highest Christology, or the highest Christology is the earliest Christology. But it's the same thing either way. I mean, that, that's becoming an increasing position. I think like a small minority holds it, but it, it's a, is it gaining more ground? Oh, I, I think so. Pe- people are recognizing that certainly within 20 years of Jesus' death, Jesus is is the recipient of a of, of a certain type of worship that's normally reserved for deity. Mm-hmm. He's not being treated merely as an angel. He's not treated like a, a deified human being, mm-hmm. as was the case in the in the Greco Roman world with the with the deification of emperors. Mm-hmm. And we also see a strong identification identification between Jesus and the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, the nature of that identification is what the church really struggled to work out. Um, Everyone knew that Jesus belonged on the God side of the equation, but how Jesus fits within the orbit of divine sovereignty, with how he relates to the agency of the Father, that's what it took the the church, you know, roughly um, two or three hundred years to figure out the right grammar, the right right way to describe Jesus' relationship to the Father. But -hmm. there was no doubt that Jesus was, uh, in a a full and meaningful sense, uh, divine, and he was was divine in in a a sense uh, identical to that of the Father. In fact, some have argued Mm -hmm. he shared in the divine identity. What is true of the God of Israel is regarded as being true of Jesus. Now, you'd said that uh, the, the thing was he was not always the son of God, but was he always called the son of God? Because the earliest references, Paul and then the Gospels, all say that Jesus was the son of God. I mean, would, or would people always say, yeah, he was called the son of God, but it didn't mean the same thing? Or was that just a later addition? Uh, well, I mean... I think the evangelists and the the apostles, in the hindsight of Easter, certainly believed that Jesus was always the eternal son. And I think the logic seems to have gone something like uh, this. Um, If Jesus has been exalted to the Father's right hand, Mm -hmm. uh, that would suggest that that was part of the plan to put him there the whole time. But the, but the one who was exalted to heaven was the same one who came from heaven. So that they sort of imply a, a double motion, a motion of both descent from, from heaven, from, the, from wherever the, the, the realm of the Father to earth, and then ascent back to God. And you get this idea, whoever Jesus is, he must have been for all eternity. So they retroject a number of his roles. So if Jesus is the one uh, through whom God made uh, the world, then he must have always had that function in eternity past. If Jesus died for our sins, then he must be the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So I think mm. I think very quickly they, they felt pressure to retroject a lot of Jesus' identity and activities and roles into eternity past as their way of making sense of who he was. Yes, but what I'm wondering, would skeptical scholars and such who hold an adoptionist Christology, would they say that Jesus was called the Son of God from the start, or would they say that when the Gospel writers and Paul use that term, that meant something different, or where did the, even the term Son of God come from? Uh, well, Son of God has a numerous backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, it's largely an honorific term 
to designate one as as the son usually of a deceased and deified emperor. For example, mm-hmm. uh, when Julius Caesar was assassinated, uh, he was later regarded as having been, you know, deified. He went into heaven, joined the um, celestial company, and his designated heir, mm-hmm. Octavius, was regarded as the son of the divine Julius. So that's so you, you in, in the Greco-Roman world you become a son of God when your daddy mm-hmm. is deified. Uh, in the in the Jewish world, though, it was a little bit different. Um, son of God could refer to angels. Uh, it could refer. I mean, all of Israel could be called a a son of God in the sense, like you know, in in the book of Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Mm-hmm. But son was also a designation for Israel's king. We see this in, a, in, in, in places like Second Samuel chapter seven, in Psalm two, and it and it and it designates the king as having a, a somewhat unique relationship with Israel's God, mm-hmm. because the king represents um, God to Israel and Israel to God. So that's where it comes from. And and in and in subsequent literature, son of God could become synonymous basically for Messiah. It's only in light of Jesus's particular usage of the term uh, that it seems to embrace both his messianic office, but his, but also his unique filial relationship with Israel's God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even for us today, you and I could be called sons of God, in a sense, since I think Paul applies that title even to Christians today, doesn't he? Oh, he certainly does. Uh, you, you could say we've been engrafted into this. Our adoption is that we've been engrafted into the sonship of Jesus, mm-hmm. and therefore we, we we belong in Jesus's family. And I think you know, to use the language of Hebrews, you know, we can call mm-hmm. Christ our brother. Yeah, I think that uh, many Christians, unfortunately, in their zeal to defend an orthodox Christology, which is good and wonderful, do leap too far when they say that if Jesus is the Son of God, where that must mean automatically he's God the Son. And that that's just not necessarily true, is it? Yeah, I mean, you, you can get connotations of divinity the way Son of God language is used in the New Testament. But that is, however, yeah. not the primary reference. Uh-huh. Um, Son of God is, in the first instance, a messianic title to designate Israel's king. Mm-hmm. And that's striking why in a number of places, I think particularly in the, in the Passion narrative of the Gospels, that Messiah and Son of God do appear in parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, uh, one of the foils I think you use in your book also is uh, Bart Ehrman. Now, in his book, uh, How God Became Jesus, he kind of would hold for an adoptionist Christology, wouldn't he? Um, well, I don't know whether Bart himself holds to any Christology. Yeah. Uh, but but he, he would argue that the what he would consider to be the earliest or initial response to Jesus was something along the lines of adoptionist, although Bart prefers to call it uh, exaltationist. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the passages that's used to argue that is Romans 1, 3 through 4. Now, what exactly is going on in Romans 1, 3 through 4? In, in Romans 1, 3 to 4, we have a short little creedal summary by Jesus, uh, sorry, by Paul, mm-hmm. uh, describing his gospel of Jesus. And he talks about how the, the gospel is pre-promised in the Holy Scriptures, and it mm-hmm. pertains to Jesus, who was a descendant of David, who was d- declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. 
Mm-hmm. Now, some take that last phrase, um, you know, declared, appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection to mean that it was at the moment of resurrection that Jesus became the Son of God. Uh-huh. Now, you can understand how people read it that way, but I just don't think that is that, that, that is what the material is getting at, nor is that how Paul uses it. For starting in verse 3, Paul already recognizes Jesus as the Son, so he, he seems to think of this as a clarification of his sonship, not the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, when Jesus is described as a descendant of David or a seed of David, that implies that Jesus is a, is is from the Davidic realm. He is the king, and if he's the king, then he's the son of God. So, in other words, the presupposition behind this little creedal statement is Jesus is already the son of God by virtue of being a son of David. Now, mm-hmm. that's that's why that background we talked about how son of God can mean Messiah or, you know, Davidic deliverer. That's what son, the son of God can mean that. So Paul already hints that Jesus is a son of God by virtue of being a son of David. However, the resurrection marks not the beginning of Jesus's divine sonship, but rather its transformation. Jesus begins to exercise some new regal and eschatological functions he did not otherwise possess by virtue of his exal- of his exaltation. Uh, that is what Paul emphasized, not the beginning of Jesus's uh, sonship, but rather how it changes and he exercises it anew in a post-resurrection state. Okay, in the interest of uh, covering all our grounds here and such, why is it that scholars, as far as I know, the huge majority are convinced that this statement isn't something that Paul wrote himself originally, but is a creed? Uh, it, it has a certain the, the way the way the little passage is constructed. Like it begins with a relative clause. A few of the words are not uh, common in the Pauline corpus. Mm-hmm. So it's very likely that this is this is early material that Paul himself has inherited and he's he's utilizing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's some of the things. I mean, we don't know a hundred percent, but it's probably more likely than not that this is a piece of traditional material that Paul himself has inherited. Yeah, and this isn't a position just held by Christian scholars. I mean, even Ehrman and others would agree that this is creedal material. Yes, exactly. So this is, I mean, if Paul's writing around, you know, 57, mm-hmm. 58, uh, this is something he himself probably received when he was a new Christian mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s or sometime around then. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people, though, who think that part of the phrase, I believe the term in power has been added to the creed. And, and you think that's doubtful. Am I am I right with that? Yeah, the the, the phrase "Son of God in power," um, that designation power uh, suggests exactly what what I spoke about. That Jesus does not go from being a non-son of God to a son of God, but rather he goes from being the Davidic son of God mm-hmm. to the son of God in power. In other words, he's exercising a new regal function. Now, that obviously messes with the narrative of some who want to find an adoptionist Christology. Mm-hmm. So they argued that the phrase in power was not part of the original creed. Uh, in fact, Paul himself added it. Uh, which is which is the tendency to cut to cut out all the bits that don't line up with your thesis. Mm. Uh, in the book How God Became Jesus, Simon Gathercole has an excellent discussion, 
mm. of that of that very argument, and he really, really puts it to bed. Mm. Uh, as far as we can tell, and there's no reason to think otherwise, the phrase "Son of God in power" was original to the creed, and it's not necessarily a Pauline addition. Mm-hmm. So, if your case is accurate, then that would mean that from an early statement, Paul. He has this creed of material, and it obviously predates him much earlier, and that would further back the idea of, and, of the earliest Christology is indeed the highest Christology, but as soon as you start talking about, talking about Jesus, a statement's going around, and since it's creed, or it's probably being taught to other churches, that gives Jesus the highest position he can have. Uh, well, it certainly represents Jesus as... Uh, a divine figure beside mm. the Father, the, the Son of God. Mm. And that sonship was transformed, but it did not begin by the event of resurrection. That, that's the main thing I would take away. Mm-hmm. And how about Philippians 2? How, how would that play in Because there's, there's another statement in there that we don't believe is original with Paul, right? Yeah, well, that's, that's another piece of material. Now, whether you think that's a creed, a hymn, a mm. poem, or some sort of just prose... Uh, again, some people argue that it's it's a it's not a Pauline composition. Mm. It's probably uh, something that Paul himself inherited, although that that is disputed. And there you have a, a an amazing statement of Jesus's the pre-existent Jesus's ascent. You know, he did not consider a God equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. The presupposition is that he already possessed equality with God, but he would not use it as a means of exploitation. He took on human form, the form of a servant, a servant, and therefore God uh, exalted him to the highest place. And what is very interesting, by giving him the name that is above every name, uh, that is a quote from Isaiah 45. If you go back to Isaiah 45, verse 23, they're talking about Yahweh, you know, the, the God of Israel. He is the one who has the name that is above every name. And yet that is now given to Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he, he seems to be included with this sort of this honorific designation within this divine, um, this, this sort of divine honors that it's normally shared with no one else. In mm-hmm. fact, when Jehovah's Witnesses come around to my house, I, mm-hmm. I love taking them to Isaiah 45, uh, verse 23, and ask them who, who is the prophet talking about, and they say Jehovah. And then I take them straight to Philippians 2, and I say we have the same language applied to Jesus. Now, you just said that applies to Jehovah. What does that tell us about Jesus then? Uh, and that usually causes a bit of a cerebral meltdown for them. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure which I find more amusing, the fact of having a cerebral meltdown or thinking, geez, I didn't realize Jehovah's Witnesses were that prominent in Australia. <laughs> no, we, we get them here too. We get them here too. Even even Mormons. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we, we've had some coming to see us for a short time every now and then since we've moved here, but for some reason they just stopped coming after a while. I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure they started reading your podcast. They started listening to your podcast, and <laughs> that's why. Oh, I thought it was my breath. <laughs> <laughs> now, there are some people who are like James Dunn, who I believe thinks that Philippians is about Adam. And do, do you think that's plausible? Oh, look, there might be some... Echoes of the Adam story there, like uh, there might be some, yeah, it could be mm. some echoes of mm. it, but I'm, but with most scholars, I'm, I don't think that this is just a a, a recapitulation mm. of the Adam story. Um, it, it seems to be talking about a a pre-existent figure 
who becomes human and is there then is then exalted to uh, divine honors. Yeah, I think something we can get out of all this also is that other references we've had that these were originally to Gentile churches, and they seem to imply a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament, which means the early church quickly learned to accept the Old Testament and to understand it and to find Jesus in it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the Old Testament was very crucial. Uh, you know, in the event of Jesus's his his ministry, his crucifixion, yeah. uh, his resurrection. Um, you know the giving of the spirit of the spirit, the the belief that Jesus was still with them, he was for them, he's exalted to the Father's right hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Christians went went through their scripture, looking for ways to articulate this, to explain it, trying to find the right kind of grammar they could use, and they seem to have settled around a number of texts. Uh, the three most cited Old Testament texts in the New Testament are all Psalms. Mm-hmm. So th- this is this is this is where the church looked to to explain who Jesus was to preach Jesus. They looked at Psalm one hundred and ten. Oh yes. Now the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was their, that was dare I say their John three sixteen. Uh-huh. That was their their text they wanted to look at to explain who, who Jesus was. And it's the most cited text in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And then after that we have Psalm two. You know the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my sorry. Uh, you are my son today, I've begotten thee. A text which, on its own, could be taken in adoptionistic direction, right. but it's applied and utilized by the early church to talk about Jesus as being the, the king God has installed over the universe, and, that, and, and that's viewed as a good thing. And then there's Psalm 118. You know, the stone the builders have re- rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has mm-hmm. done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's. I mean, th- this is this is where they got a lot of their their Christology from. It was informed by the Old Testament. It, it wasn't just kind of making stuff up, and certainly not simply just you know um, plagiarizing pagan myths and Greco-Roman stories. It's right. There are, this is and this is important. Nick. Yeah. The early church is articulating the divinity of Jesus. But they're not doing it according to the canons of uh, 17th century philosophical ideas of divinity and religion. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it largely according to um, Greco-Roman mythology. Right. When they say Jesus is God, they do it in a Jewish way. Mm-hmm. They look at the, the nature of the God of Israel, his actions – you know, they use language more closely related to the temple, since that's the locus of divine presence. They talk about the Shekinah, the glory. They say Jesus is God, but in a very Jewish way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that would be very important, that it's done in a Jewish way, because it's not as if they go out and start evangelizing among the Gentiles, say, hey, why don't we just turn Jesus into a God, and that way he can compete with the Gentiles. That it shows this as thoroughly Jewish roots from the very beginning. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. No, exactly. That's right. And, and and people want to say, well, if Jesus was God, why didn't he say it like this? And then they mm. give their their idea of the correct way of saying Jesus is God, right. which is usually derived something uh, from our own philosophical view that we get from the, from the enlightenment. You know, this is the enlightened way 
of saying the enlightened way of saying that a human being is fully divine. But but you know, unbelievably as it is to imagine, um, you know, we're not dealing with the Enlightenment era. The, we have a group, we have the the early church who have had powerful experience of Jesus both in his life and the, the belief that he's he's been raised from the dead and he has a unique relationship with the God of Israel and they're finding ways to express that relationship he has with uh, the God of Israel and, and they, they're using Jewish language, the Jewish ideas of agency, Jewish ideas of, of personhood and identity to express that and I think that's the fundamental thing we need to take away. I think groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims especially often make the mistake of thinking that if Jesus is God, where he should have just been going all around Israel telling, hey, I'm God, worship me. Yeah, and, and, that, that's, and that's such a, a mixed mischaracterization, you know, yeah. uh, as if Jesus was just basically announcing his deity mm-hmm. and, you know, was otherwise, you know, telling a, a bunch of Sunday school stories, you know, uh, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's not at all what Jesus was doing. He, he, he believed that on the, on the one hand, I mean, Jesus, we could say Jesus was a monotheist. I mean, he believed in God. He prayed to God. Uh, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. And yet, there is always an implicit self-reference in what Jesus is doing, mm. as if the God of Israel now has to be understood and defined in relation to Jesus' own actions. Mm. That's why Jesus says, you know, not, not just that the kingdom of God is coming, but, you know, if I cast out demons by the by the spirit of God or by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come you God's reign is embodied and represented and enacted precisely by himself and he is the one who is the very king of God's kingdom I, I remember you said something once it might have been in this book I don't remember exactly but it was along the lines of something like if Jesus does not inform our theology in any way there's something wrong with our theology yeah, I mean, I th- think that that might be from my book, Evangelical Theology. Um, you know, for for a lot of people, I, I lament to say, for a lot of Christians, basically Jesus is John the Baptist to Paul. Mm-hmm. Paul is Paul is the real theologian, and uh, Jesus is just kind of the the warm up act, mm-hmm. uh, which is a kind of a, a particularly weird way of articulating things, you know, especially for people who consider themselves to be. Uh, to be a Christian. It's been said uh, like I, the Gospels are chips and dip and the Pauline epistles are a feast. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which just makes me absolutely cringe when you hear that, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly as, as a scholar who has specialized in, in so much time in the Gospels. Right. That No, Jesus actually is a theologian. Mm-hmm. Jesus, is, Jesus is the one who connects the story of Israel to the story of the church. And we need to uh, understand that Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, not in, in the sense of how to get saved and how to be a good Christian, but how God's purposes and plan for Israel are manifested in God's kingdom, and that finds its fullest expression in the church. Jesus was the, uh, if you like, the the uh, propounder of, of, a, of a restorationist Christology where where God's plan was from the prophets mm-hmm. that, that a transformed Israel would transform the world. And Jesus believed he was bringing Israel to this point of transformation, setting before them this, this, this moment of national decision. Whose way of Israel are they going to follow? Because they all have different consequences. And Jesus sees his way of Israel as being uh, the path to restoration and renewal for the nation. 
and they can be part of that or they can reject it and they'll put themselves on their own path to a violent confronta- a confrontation with Rome. I was meaning to say also a while ago that we're looking at some of scripture references, but if people are interested in earlier shows, we did this some too. I did an interview, I think it was earlier this year in February, Matthew Bates on his book, The Birth of a Trinity, and we discussed some of these same verses. So if you're looking for even more, if this gets your appetite wet, go back and listen to that. But before we get into the Gospels, I would like to go to another text that you talk about, and it's one that's used quite often. In fact, when uh, James White was on Unbelievable, and I listened to that just because it's Unbelievable at that point, then he uh, he had a show where it was he was being grilled on various topics, and one was a Unitarian calling in yeah. and asking about Acts 2.36. Now, according to the NASB, that verse reads, Therefore, let, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I don't think White did a very good job at all answering the questions about that, but Mike, that verse, it, it does seem pretty clear. God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ. I mean, that, that obviously means he became Lord and Christ at one point, doesn't it? Uh, some would take it. Uh, that way, I have a lengthy discussion mm-hmm. of that passage in the book, and in many ways, I piggyback on the work of two other scholars, Martin Hengel mm-hmm. and Kevin uh, Rowe. The most compelling reason to avoid an adoptionist reading of that text is simply to read it in its wider context. If you read the whole speech that Paul, sorry, Peter makes in Acts chapter 2, it becomes very clear that that they do not have in mind an adoptionist Christology. We find in that passage hints of uh, Jesus's pre-existence. We find also statements to the the effect that uh, Jesus is the kurios, he is the Lord. I mean, if you call on his name, you are saved. Which is Joe. uh, yeah, which is which is out of Joel too, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, we we get the, you get the citation of Psalm sixteen, which which makes and this is where um, Matthew Bates was talking about, yeah. where Jesus is both the object of the psalm in a prophetic sense, but also the subject of the psalm as its speaker. Mm-hmm. And well, and what is envisaged there is not merely some sort of ideal pre-existence, as in the idea of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, but but he is the he is a figure who already speaks in Scripture. So if he's a pre-existing being, then he's not simply one who becomes divine. He's already a divine or heavenly figure in some respect. And I mean, we we could go on and we could talk about the use of Psalm 110, mm. as I said. But what but what what I take away from Psalm two is not the idea that Jesus has been made uh, something other than he was, but Jesus is identified with Israel's Lord. He has a clear prehistory in God's purposes. His voice can already be heard in Scripture. Jesus is someone who the who the reader knows to be the miracle working Son of God. Death is powerless to contain him. Uh, he's the dispenser of the spirit, which is something that only Yahweh can do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what we find in in Acts two, and so I, I don't think this is the idea of a human being 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 exalted, uh, but but it's something. It's it's more like God's in your face to his opponents, irrespective of what you've declared Jesus to be. 
I've declared him to be Lord and Messiah. So mm. it's more of a kind of in-your-face to Jesus's critics and opponents. And that, that is what the resurrection would do, because if Jesus was some wicked blasphemer going around, then, yes, crucifixion would have ascertained that in everyone's mind, gone down in history as... As I said, as Pilate said in the Bible, miniseries, which would have been true, he'd be he'll be forgotten within a week, and he exactly. would have been. But if God raises him from the dead, and what he's doing is, hey, Jesus gets my stamp of approval. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And what what I think we have to say is that um, God's action in the resurrection and the exaltation it does not alter Jesus's identity. Yeah. It confirms his identity, yeah. as as Luke would call him, the Lord's Messiah. Yeah, I, I prefer to see it as kind of sort of God's vindication of what Jesus has done. And as soon as the audience realizes that, then that's why they're so tough. Like, oh my gosh, what have we done? We've, we've killed the Lord in Christ. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another passage I've used when I've, uh, when I've encountered that one is I've gone back even further to the Gospel of Luke. And when we get yeah. to the Christmas story, he says, And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So both titles apply right there. So either someone's misunderstanding Acts 2 or Luke is very sloppy with his Christology. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what's going on there in that passage is that the, the two roles, I mean, there are distinct roles, Messiah and Lord, but they're brought in very close proximity. Right. Uh, both in, both in, uh, I think generally in Luke Acts, uh, I think they're brought closer together, but arguably in other places in the New Testament as well. As I was thinking about what you were saying here, you have this passage, Christ the Lord, and then he made Lord in Christ, and you go into the Pauline epistles, you'll find Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, it just seems so fascinating thinking about this fact. The Lordship of Christ and his being Messiah seem to be intricately woven together consistently and early on. Uh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, you know, that the, 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 the one who is the, the Messiah, the uh, Davidic deliverer, mm. is also regarded as sharing in the the orbit of divine sovereignty. He is the Lord. He is the kurios mm-hmm. of Israel. He is the kurios to whom Christians give uh, devotion and worship. Yeah. When these scholars are looking at Acts 2.36, it sounds to me, based on what you're saying, that we have a case of them missing the forest for the trees. That there's this whole surrounding context of Jesus as Lord, deity, highly exalted. And here's this one verse writing that seems to say something different possibly if you read a different way and that's what they focus on uh, exactly i mean if you if you take acts 236 by itself yeah i, I could understand how right. someone would take that in adoptionist way but again if you i mean context is king i mean right. looking in the whole passage where we've got this clear statement of pre-existence we've got this idea of jesus already speaking in scripture jesus is you know the name of the lord uh, is the name of Jesus. He's the one upon you call upon are saved. Yeah. And the context seems to be, this is not a how, the story of how Jesus became Lord and Messiah. This is the kind of in your face, irrespective of what you've said about him, what you did to him, God has reversed it and he has declared him Lord and Messiah. Yeah, I'm thinking part of the problem could be that so much of us in a much more modern Western and, dare I say, American context 
tend to think that if you're you're wanting to say something about someone, you have to come out and just explicitly say something. But a Jewish audience and thinker, they they don't necessarily work that way, do they? Uh, yeah, I, I think a, a Jewish approach would be far more conducive to reading uh, the New Testament this right. way, recognizing the the nuances and the subtleties of the heavenly of the sorry the original context, rather than you know implying a, a reliance on other frameworks uh, for understanding the text. Now you uh, pointed a Psalm two earlier in our discussion, the one about uh, you are my son today I've become your father and such. And that is said at the baptism of Jesus, in a sense. And the baptism of Jesus is one that's often seen as an indication of an adoptionist Christology, because Jesus goes down, he gets baptized, and he hears a voice that says, you are my son, as if to say to some people, well, look, see, he got baptized, and then God adopts him as his son. Uh, yeah, I can un- again, you can understand how people could read it that way, uh-huh. but once more, you've got to look at the wider context. I mean, let's take the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. The Gospel of Mark opens with John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord, and the Lord who comes is Jesus. Mm-hmm. So clearly, Mark is set up so we identify Jesus with the Lord, the Kurios, uh, who himself is coming. Right. Now, we, you know, we can haggle a little bit over uh, agency and that type of thing, but the coming of the Lord means the coming of Jesus. Uh-huh. The other thing, if, if it is a divine voice that says, you are my son, is a moment of baptism, then we've got a very serious problem. Because not only is there a voice that says, you are my son at Jesus' baptism, but we hear the voice again at the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. Does Jesus get adopted a second time? Mm-hmm. And then at the foot of the cross, the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. Is this another sort of declaration of Jesus becoming the son of God, being deified at his death? I mean, to be perfectly honest, if you think Roman ideas of deification or an apotheosis have shaped Mark's gospel, you'd be far more likely to think that Jesus became divine at his death, mm-hmm. if anything. Yeah. So I think it's very unlikely that Jesus is uh, designated or appointed the, the, the divine son at his baptism. What we have in uh, the baptism story of Jesus, at least in Mark's account, is not the beginning of Jesus' sonship, but rather we have Mark's account of the beginning of the gospel. I would like to get some clarification on the usage of apotheosis in case I've got some listeners here who don't understand the term. You would be me in that case that Jesus, after he dies, gets exalted to deity, which is often what happened to yeah. the Caesars and such. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it's deification, the process of becoming divine. The uh, divine, the technical word for it uh, is apotheosis. Yeah. When you went to the Gospel of Mark, which is <laughs> the place I was actually hoping we'd go to, I, I couldn't but remember, I've heard that even John Dominic Crossan, who's not a Christian at all, has said about the start of Mark 1, that it would pretty much be a way of saying, in your face, Caesar. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think you could definitely see it that way. I mean, resurrection undoes the power of the tyrant. The tyrant's power is death. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing he can do in resurrection. Um, the, the God of life, the God of creation undoes it. He undoes the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it also though the idea of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that could be seen as itself a challenge to Caesar, since whenever a new Caesar was born, 
here is good news. Caesar is on the phone now, and yeah. they understand. Say, hey, good news. Jesus is Lord now. Yeah, yeah. In my book, uh, both the Gospel of the Lord and um, an anomalous Jew, and those two books, wonderfully published by Erdmans, I present lengthy discussions of of the word Evangelion, or its plural Evangelia, for good news or glad tidings. Yeah. And it's very interesting how that word is used. It could be you know, the news of the, the rise and accession of a new emperor, news of military victory over foreign powers, um, you know, that, that type of a thing, this, that, that language of gospel. And, and it's taken up and used by Christians, I think partly with influ- influence of um, the Greco-Roman world in various inscriptions we can read and various designations in, in, in Roman literature. But it's also shaped by the, the, the prophetic background. If you look at like, you know, Isaiah 52 verse 7, you know, you know the, the glad tidings, you know, announcing to, to the exiles in Babylon that your God reigns. And I think that's, that, that, that's largely where Jesus's proclamation of the gospel comes from, this, this announcement that the Isianic promises of restoration are happening, which is then taken up in the early church and maybe married with a bit of influence from the Greco-Roman world about this news of victory. I mean, that's what usually Evangelion normally means, news of victory. Now, you said that that idea could have come from the Greco-Roman war, and I can imagine some skeptics out there saying, wait, wait, I thought that this was all Jewish in its thinking, and here we're saying, oh, this came from a Greco-Roman society. Would it be fair to say the ideas of how to understand Jesus and such are Jewish, but when the gospel is presented and it goes out to the people, it, it uses the language that they would be familiar with then? Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful here. When I argue that the New Testament authors are principally shaped by Jewish ways of thinking, uh, scriptural and Jewish ways of framing things, I don't mean that in the sense that they are completely isolated from the thought forms and the culture, uh, the symbols, the metaphors, and the imagery of of the Greco-Roman world. I mean... I mean, you, you, you can find uh, quite a number of, or in some cases, borrowings from Greco-Roman thought. There, there, are some, there are some similarities between Stoic ethics and Christian ethics, particularly on, on things like self-control. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the whole, I do think the, the Jewish uh, themes do predominate. And I base that simply on the fact that there's far more echoes of the Old Testament than there is of Homer. In, in the New Testament. So I think we should think that uh, Jew- Jewish thought forms, particularly those from Scripture, are, are, the, are the main sort of grammar for what we get. But that again, that's not that doesn't mean to the complete rejection or the complete isolation of Greco-Roman stuff. And in the case of the word gospel mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, uh, the, the encyclopedia of meaning that sort of goes with it, you know, with the way it was used and applied, uh, Christians, you know, the apostles, I think, did use that type of language. I mean, they were Greek speakers, and in their own way, they were immersed in the Greco-Roman world. Yeah, I, I think it's important because, especially here in America, we can tend to water down the gospel, sadly. And I, I think N.T. Wright has very well said the gospel wasn't, go- wasn't in the case of Caesar, for instance, saying, good news, Caesar is on the throne, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. It's more like, no, Caesar is now in charge, Mm. so you better get your pinch of insult ready to worship him or it's not going to go very well for you. Mm -hmm. And 
if that's the same understanding Mark has at the start, then what he's saying is actually Jesus is in charge, and you'd better be bowing down and repenting right now, or else it's not going to go very well for you. Uh, I think I think that's generally true. Or although added to that as well is the the fact that Jesus is 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 not just a different tyrant who mm. threatens us; mm. he is the servant king, yeah. and he invites us to to faith to give up our own pretensions to power and value and to embrace him mm-hmm. as providing our own our own uh, our own standing before God our own source of life and hope yeah and if we if we are right in that understanding and we could look at the the, the reference to Isaiah and to Malachi and such and see that the passage you mean in for instance from Isaiah about making paths straight that's done because Yahweh is coming, and yet here, make the path straight, Jesus is coming. So if we accept the divine Christology at the, God, at the baptism, everything seems to fit together very well, doesn't it? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it does if you, if you take the opening of Mark's Gospel, where, you know, where, where clearly the, the language there is about, you know, prepare the way for the Lord, and the mm. Lord who then turns up is Jesus. I mean... Mm. Uh, you, you don't you don't need to be a rocket scientist to see <laughs> to see what the logic of that position is. I mean, you combine that then with other elements of Mark's Christology as well. I mean, uh, you know, I always found it interesting in Mark's Gospel, you know, where the demons say, "We know who you are, the Holy One of God. We know who you are, the Son of God." I mean, how, how do they know he's the Son of God? Uh, you know, did they did they see did, did one of them see the baptism of Jesus and then went on the you know demon demonic WhatsApp and was spreading the news? <laughs> I mean, how did they figure it out? Most likely that the demons know Jesus because he is a supernatural figure. He is a heavenly figure. He's a divine figure. And they are positively browning their underpants when they think about the prospect of being confronted by the Son of God. Are you sure they didn't just Google it? Uh, well, maybe demon Google. Uh, well, maybe well Google can be a bit demonic, so maybe <laughs> they did. Who knows? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that, that, what's interesting about that story is that even shows up in the very first chapter of Mark. It's not something that shows up later on. It's right there, right at the very start. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it, it's, it's there from the very beginning. At this point, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host. We've got Dr. Michael Bird on here talking about his book, Jesus the Eternal Son, Answering Adoptionist Christology. But if you're here next week, this is one that you might want to give the kiddies around to listen to. That would be the kids and the kitties as well, because we're going to be talking about animals and what happens when animals die? Can we expect to see animals in eternity? And that Dan's story is going to be my guest. He's written an interesting book, and one that I say I was, was quite scholarly, much more than I've expected to call it. 
Will dogs chase cats in heaven? So we will be talking about what happens to your pets when they die. Will they be waiting for you on the other side? And I say he makes a very persuasive case. But for now, let's return to Michael Bird's persuasive case that Jesus is the eternal son. Well, now, I've got some opinions about the animals in heaven. Okay. I've got some, well, I mean... There was a little girl who once said to her grandma that when, when puppies die, do they go to heaven? And the grandma said, yes, there's two heavens, one for us Anglicans and another one for cute puppies and Baptists. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there will be puppies in Baptist heaven. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I used That's to attend. Not so sure. Cats, I'm not so sure about. They, 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 they're just inherently evil. Mm, you know, my, my wife used to think the same thing, and until she found a cat she fell in love with, and now he lives with us, and he's all over her Facebook page. I bet. <clears throat> I bet. And although your, your joke does remind me of, and I used to attend a, a Baptist church, pretty regular, quite a few of them, so this isn't to knock my Baptist friends, but about how I... Peter is introducing some new Christians to into heaven and such and go past all these rooms and all these people are shouting and serving and such. Okay, now go by this next room, be very quiet. And they go by and then the next room they're shouting and celebrating and you ask, what's going on in that room? Says, oh, uh, that's the Baptist room. They think they're the only ones here. No, oh, of course. Yes. Uh, well, Nick, Nick it, it has been wonderful to talk with you. I have to go back and do some teaching in a moment or oh. so. Okay. So uh, it, is, it, it has been uh, wonderful. It's always good to talk to you, Nick. You're doing a great job with this podcast. Mm -hmm. well, so I'll have, to, I'll have to leave you in a moment. Mm -hmm. Well, before you do then, I'd like to remind everyone, and please that, keep in mind that the Deeper Waters podcast is supported by listeners like you. I do encourage you to go to deeperwatersofprojects.com and donate there and Michael, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? I, I, I certainly like the uh, the Bible Society or the Australian Bible Society in particular, uh, or or an organization like the Tyndall Fellowship. Okay. Now, the book is uh, Jesus the Eternal Son. It's twelve eighty one right now on Amazon. It's only in paperback, not out in Kindle yet. Hopefully. In the future. Uh, Mike, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? Uh, yeah, you can find me at my blog, um, uh, Evangelion, over at uh, Hosted by Patheos, or you can follow me on Twitter at Ember12. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Worlds audience? Uh, oh, no, th just thank you to Nick. You're doing a great job here. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I wish you and your listeners a very blessed week. And like mine, everyone, at yes, next week, we're talking about dogs and cats in heaven. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs> <laughs>